Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation. But it's not a coronation you'd expect, because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect. The sermon text is from Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. I believe it's on the screen. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and with a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Pray with me. Father, uh, as we read about this passage in Bartimaeus, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, of our state. Father, we're born and we live and, and we're blind. We're not physically blind. Sometimes that's the case, but the normal state is we're not physically blind. But we're spiritually blind to the reality of our state as fallen creatures and your state as a holy, perfect God. And the same as in this passage, it's only through Christ's work on our behalf that we're able to see spiritually that reality. We're able to see your glory only by the work of your Son. So I pray during this, uh, this time, this morning, that you'll teach us the deepness and the truth of that, that we are sinful and that you are holy. And it's only through your work that we're able to be reunited with you. Father, I pray for this offering that we give. You'll take what we give, you'll multiply it, you'll continue to build your kingdom here in Charleston in our city and also around the world. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Really glad to see you. My name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, Res Kids, you guys are dismissed for class. I had a flashback when I said I'm the lead pastor here. Ushers, you guys can go ahead and come forward as well. 
we had a secret church on uh, what Friday night and into I guess Saturday morning. Um, and it went really well, and we had some uh, folks from down in Beckley who saw that we were hosting a simulcast, so they drove up, and they asked one of our guys, they said, this is awesome, like, which one of them's the pastor? <laughs> and he was like, that one. And they're like, what? And so I said, man, like, don't be offended, like, that's how it's going to be for a while. So, um, speaking of Secret Church, we had a really good time listening to David Platt teach for six hours. Um, some of us for six hours. It was a long night, but we had a whole lot of fun. It was great to be in the theater for a Resurrection Church event, because um, everything we've been in there for has been stuff that's state booked, and so it's been cool to see it, but uh, it was sort of a taste of what's to come, looking at a bunch of people uh, from our church walking around in there, and so I can't wait to, to fill that place for God's glory with you guys and all the folks that you uh, invite between now and September the 9th. Um, one note about the offering, we do have a new system for offering. Basically, the reason for that is we had like an offering system and we had like a kids check-in system and we had like all these sort of different softwares and, and Nate has had the brilliant idea of that's stupid. And so um, basically, we um, decided to just consolidate into one, uh, one program that does all those things. And so if you have a, a recurring payment set up like I did, uh, go, um, you can access on the the website, we go to the give page, you can go in and change, cancel your current program on Easy Tithe and then set up whatever you got to do on the new one. So I did that this week and uh, also uh, increased it a little bit just to stretch our, stretch what, what we can do. So I, I encourage you to do uh, both of those things. Uh, last month, I preached a sermon entitled Spiritual Blindness. And some of you may remember that one. It may be in your notes a few pages back. And in there, I spoke of the relationship between the eye and the heart. Uh, and there was sort of a simple spiritual truth that uh, wasn't the big idea, but it did un- uh, sort of underlie the entire passage. And that is that uh, hard hearts lead to blind eyes. Hard hearts lead to blind eyes. I prayed that that morning that God would soften our hearts and give us eyes to see him. Today, we have a second healing miracle, to be specific, a second um, sight-giving miracle. But it's significant, and I chose to highlight this at the end of 10, though we preached from uh, a little bit earlier in chapter 10 last week, because it's a big sort of moment in the text as we look at Mark's narrative as a whole, because Mark 10, 46 through 52, where we are today, is sort of um, the end of Christ's itinerant ministry, his um, preaching, and, and mo- much of his teaching, and pretty much all of his miracles. He's only got uh, one more miracle he's going to do, and it's cursing a fig tree. So um, the raising people to life, the healing people, uh, the feeding thousands and thousands of people, those sorts of things are coming to an end. Traveling is almost over. The positive energy of the crowd is going to peak next week or so and then fade away. The miracles, as we've come accustomed to seeing these several weeks, will, will cease because Christ is headed to Jerusalem. He's headed for his coronation, for the coronation of our better king. But Jesus this morning has one more miracle. This portion of Mark ends with a second sight-giving miracle. Today in the healing of blind Bartimaeus, we see that Jesus will heal and use all who come to him with a sincere heart. Jesus will heal and use all who come to him with a sincere heart. May we this morning come to Christ with the heart of Bartimaeus, 
as he proclaims, Son of David, have mercy on me. May that be our heart's cry by the end of this sermon. Son of David, Messiah, have mercy on us. It's a short text today, so we're just going to kind of work through it verse by verse in sort of a narrative fashion. Verse 46, look with me, and they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So where are we and who is present? We are in Jericho. Some of you Old Testament scholars are uh, familiar with that word Jericho, and as you may predict, the old city of Jericho is pretty much Um, completely disinhabited by Jesus' day. There is, however, a new city of Jericho, and this new city of Jericho was the home of Herod's magnificent winter palace. So this Jericho place is a pretty uh, nice, pretty upscale place. But they're leaving town, and they are headed, ultimately, we know, to Jerusalem from here. So who's involved in our text this week? Um, We don't have the religious leaders, so we don't have the uh, opposition that we've seen from so many of these folks who are trying to snuff out this uh, burgeoning movement, but two-thirds of the parties we've covered over these last several months are present in our text today. First, we see the crowds, right? The crowds are almost ever-present in Mark's narrative, and then we see Jesus and his disciples. As I've sort of alluded to, they are headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover is the most significant pilgrimage feast on the Jewish calendar, of which there are seven feasts and three in which traditionally uh, Jews from all over the ancient Near East would travel to Jerusalem. Of course, we know, looking back on history, that this Passover would be like no other. So we have the crowd, we have Jesus and his disciples, and they're, uh, they're kind of all working their way to Jerusalem. So this isn't so much an instance where Jesus is the um, center of attention so much as he is certainly very, very popular among the crowds, but they're all sort of going somewhere together. And then we're introduced to a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Mark is translating the word Bartimaeus for his hearers who wouldn't be familiar with the language he was speaking. Bartimaeus just means son of Timaeus. Interestingly enough, Bartimaeus, I I just found this fascinating, is the only person who is sort of a recipient of Christ's miracle in any of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, who is named by the author. So, you know, Jesus heals this person, he heals this person, he heals this person in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. But Bartimaeus stands somewhat alone as the only one who the author clearly says his name is Bartimaeus. And so we're, we're forced to ask a sort of question, well, why? You know, why does Bartimaeus have his name uh, called and, and, and no one else? A lot of commentators think it's because Bartimaeus would go on to become a leader in the church. And I think this is a pretty powerful truth, if so, uh, because Jesus doesn't just heal this guy and leave him there, but he has a plan for Bartimaeus. That Jesus doesn't see Bartimaeus as this guy who's destined to be a roadside beggar, but Jesus sees Bartimaeus as someone made in his image who he has gifted and called for the service of his kingdom. Even if it's not true, we'll see ultimately that that is the case. But it's a very good chance that Bartimaeus would go on to become a leader. And so the people receiving this letter would would hear that name and say, Bartimaeus, that's awesome, man. Like, I didn't know that was your story. So that is pretty neat. But that's neither here nor there, ultimately. Verse 47. 
And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So we, we noted last week how the rich young ruler, when he came to Jesus, he was respectful. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and we talked about how um, he shows some deference to Christ. He shows respect for Christ, good teacher. And Jesus, of course, corrects him. He corrects his worldview that assumes he's a good guy going to another good guy and says, no, no one's good except God alone. Jesus rebukes him because this guy doesn't know Jesus is God. And if Jesus isn't God, then he's most definitely not not good. But Bartimaeus sort of takes it a whole nother level from where the rich young ruler took it, because he doesn't just say um, rabbi or good teacher. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Let's note two things about this first. First, the address. Ever since the promise that we can find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, that God would raise up an offspring to David and establish his throne forever, pious Israelites awaited a Davidic descendant as their Messiah, that their Messiah would come, and he would come from the lineage of David. So when the, this guy, when Bartimaeus says, Jesus, son of David, in essence, we could translate that as him saying, essentially, right, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Messiah. We note his address as one that is different from all other addresses from people who don't really know him. Secondly, the request. The request. Notice what he he doesn't say. He doesn't say what? Fix my eyesight. He doesn't say, make me not a beggar. He doesn't say, make my situation better. He says what? Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Church, no one has ever from the heart said, Messiah, have mercy on me and not received mercy. Maybe you're not a believer, maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and you don't know how to address God and I think that Bartimaeus shows us a good place to start. Have mercy on me, Messiah, a sinner. Verse 48. Many, many, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And here we're introduced to the crowds. And I can just sort of picture um, Jesus, right, with Peter, James, and John around him and the rest of his disciples, and then this herd of people who think he's super famous. And I don't know if you've ever seen, like, a famous person out in the crowd, um, but it is a, a remarkable thing to see. I remember I was in, like, I don't know, middle school, and I was at the Charleston Civic Center, and O.J. Mayo and that incredible basketball team was having a big basketball game, and uh, so there's it's like 10,000, I mean, there's thousands of people there, and I go out to the concession stand, and I'm kind of coming around the concourse, and then coming around the concourse, sort of the other side of the big circle is Randy Moss. Oh, yeah, that's royalty in these parts, man. So here comes Randy Moss, straight cash homie, coming around there, and he's got a full-length fur coat on. Full length. Man, that thing had to cost like $12,000 in a jungle. I mean, that thing was just massive. And so um, I see him and, and I, I run the other way. When I, when I saw this, I almost pictured that because it's almost like if I would have run up to Randy Moss and not to make a, you know, a one-to-one thing, Randy Moss Jesus is not doing that. But if I would run up to him, the crowd would be like, get out of the way, man. He doesn't care about you. Like, he's not here for you. And whenever you see someone, in famous, someone famous out in public, you know, it's kind of like, they don't care about you. Like, I hate to say it, but they really don't care about Mason Ballard. And I just see how different Jesus is than other famous people. 
Because I picture the crowd presuming that Jesus is just like all the other rabbis they know. Yeah, nice guys, but man, they like a little power, right? Yeah, nice guys, but they definitely keep their space from the rabble of the day. And so I picture this blind beggar coming, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And I just see the whole crew around Jesus, right, coming up to him and being like, man, like, shut up, dude. Like, listen, like, you are sitting here by the side of the road. You always sit by the side of the road. You're nobody who knows nothing about anything. And this guy is the best teacher in town. He's the most popular person in all the region. Like, he doesn't care about you. And the crowd is trying to marginalize his voice. They're trying to, to shut this guy up. Son of David, have mercy on me. But the text says he what? This is my favorite phrase that I'm preaching this morning. He cried out all the more. He cried out all the more. So the crowd, you almost picture this escalating situation, right? Where the crowd's like, man, stop it, seriously. Like, this is embarrassing. We want to have a nice road set up for him to walk by. And he's crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd's like, man, be quiet. And then stop. But he doesn't listen to the crowd. He listens to basically what he believes to be true about Jesus. And that if this Jesus is who I think he is, then he most certainly cares about me. He cried out all the more. No, I'm not going to be quiet, Bartimaeus essentially says, because I can't be quiet. Jesus is my only hope, and he's right here, and I'm right here, and that's all, all I can think about. They're trying to silence him, but he's just getting louder, and I think his desperation, his boldness, and his, and his urgency are helpful for us to consider this morning. And I just have a couple of questions for, for, for us as a church First, are we as desperate for Christ as this blind Bartimaeus on the side of the road? Do we cling to him? Do we see the treasure that he is? Do we know that he is our only hope? He is the only thing in our lives that will bring fulfillment. So we are desperate for him and not for other things. Are we desperate for Christ? Secondly, are we bold? Are we bold like Bartimaeus? You know, as he's calling out um, Son of David, have mercy on me. He knows this isn't a popular message, but he knows it's a true message. And are we bold in our gospel proclamation? When the world certainly won't throw a party for our piety, they won't understand why we believe what we believe, but are we bold in our gospel witness? And finally, are we urgent? I want in my life, and I want for our church, the urgency of Bartimaeus on the side of the road, knowing that right there is Jesus, and right here's my chance Right there is Jesus, and, and right here is our chance. And the scriptures speak of, of coming to God in the day in which he may be found, and that our friends and our family and people in our lives who don't know Christ, that Jesus is near, that Jesus is alive, and his church is his body sent out into the world to embody his presence and to be his people and to be his hands and feet. Are we urgent with this gospel message? Because Christ is here, but there will be a day when he returns and the story is over. Are we urgent about sharing the gospel with people in our lives? If everyone in the church shared the gospel as much as I do, how many people would hear the gospel this week? A question to ask yourself. If everyone in the church shared the gospel as much as I do, how many people would hear the gospel this week? His crying out all the more encourages the Christians in the room. If you're not yet a Christian, I want to make the case to you that the crowds are still trying to keep you from calling out to Jesus. 
The crowds are still trying to keep you from calling out to Jesus. No, 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 you, you don't want that. Right? He's too restrictive. He doesn't care about you. It's this pie of the sky thing. Don't, don't worry about that. But the good news for us, the good news for me, the good news for you, and the good news for Bartimaeus is that Jesus cares about blind beggars on the side of a road in Jericho, and he cares about really average people in Charleston, West Virginia. When opposition comes, cry out all the more. Because it just might work. In verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him. And I, <laughs> I love the, the, the flipping of the crowd here. Uh, how the tables turn, right? In, in verse 49, um, Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, hey, take heart, get up, he's calling you. <laughs> it's like one second they're like, hey man, listen, he don't care about you, be quiet, be quiet. And then Jesus is like, call him. And they're like, man, you're the man, come on, come on, come on. He wants you, let's go. And they, they bring him to Jesus, take heart. But you'll see, I think this teaches us something important. Uh, crowds care about marginalized people when it's cool, but Jesus cares about marginalized people all the time. Crowds care about marginalized people when it's cool. It's cool to care about people who are down on their luck. It's cool to uh, fight for uh, our idea of, of justice in the world around us. Um, but Jesus cares about marginalized people when it's not cool. Jesus cares about marginalized people when it's actually costly. If a surface reading of the Gospels show us anything, quite simply, it's that Jesus has a heart for the forgotten, the marginalized, the despised, and the oppressed. If we look at the sorts of people who come to Jesus and don't follow him versus the sorts of people who come to Jesus and do, we will be surprised by the split of how the world views those sorts of people. Guys like Zacchaeus, bad guys, tough guys, down on their luck guys, blind guys, people like that are people who saw in Jesus someone worth following. I think the text says, well, I know the text says, it's a different thought, Jesus stopped and said, call him. They called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. I think it's worth noting that Jesus is not too busy or too emotionally occupied to stop and care for someone else. Jesus is not too busy, nor is he too emotionally occupied to stop and care for someone else. If that doesn't challenge us enough, let me say it another way with another phrase sort of stuck in, in there. Jesus is not too busy or emotionally occupied while on his way to the cross to stop and care for someone else. I, church, when we're going through stuff in our life, are, are we aware that there are still other people around us? a peek inside the curtain. You know, the biggest growth in my life, I think, over the last two years is learning how to not prioritize myself when I'm going through a lot. When we're going through a lot, emotionally, physically, whatever it may be, we have a tendency to begin to what? Look inward. When we're going through big things in our lives, we have a tendency to become preoccupied with ourselves. But I begin to see that as Christ is marching towards his cross, as he is just uh, a short time away from his crucifixion and resurrection, that even then his eye is on the beggar. When we compare ourselves with Jesus, it becomes apparent that we are a profoundly narcissistic people. 
our narcissism is revealed in many, many ways, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, etc. I just think for the most part, we tend to look more like the crowds than we do Jesus when it comes to our generosity of being. That even on his walk, right, while he's surrounded with all these people, it's a new season of his life is about to come upon him. Jesus is not too busy to take some time and be with Bartimaeus, the blind beggar on the side of the road. When compared with Jesus, it becomes apparent just how profoundly narcissistic we are. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? I was listening to an Alan Hirsch lecture, gearing up for one mission, and, and he said something I've heard a million times, but it, it just struck me this week when he said, a budget is a theological statement. That's true for a church, but it's true for, for you. Your bank account tells you what you value. The way you spend your time in a day tells us what we value. And my hope for us is that we would become a more generous people with everything in us. Uh, we, were, we had a, a strengthen and send intensive at our state convention office this week, and, and Cleve, uh, a member here, was teaching about generosity, and, and I shared some of the, the good things that God's been doing here at Res at the end of that. Um, and I said, we're a church comprised largely of uh, millennials, probably, I don't know, 65, 75% millennials. Um, and millennials are not generous people, like statistically. Like we are a very greedy bunch of folks. Um, but I think we came by it honestly, parents, so don't get too mad at us. And Appalachians are a stingy people. We're also a private people. You don't talk about money, you don't talk about religion, and you don't talk about politics. And so, you know, my family will talk about the religion and politics, but we still don't talk about the money a whole lot, you know what I'm saying? And so, it's an Appalachian thing. And I, I said, so imagine being a church largely of Appalachian millennials, just how not generous that we, we are when you add those things together. And so, I am sort of, so with some of the guys who I have some influence over, I'm instituting some like no Venmo policies. Like when you go out with someone, buy their dinner, just buy it. Don't repay him. Don't worry about it. Don't keep records of who owes who what. Let's do it. You know, maybe if we're babysitting, maybe I'll just hit decline on the Venmo thing next time. You know, maybe, maybe we'll just learn to be like, you know, we're going to take care of ourselves. We're going to be fair financially. We're not going to take advantage of each other. But we're also going to be generous. We're also going to be generous. And I think we have a ways to go uh, in terms of our generosity. Verse 50. I love verse 50, the enthusiasm he pops up with and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came. It's almost like Christmas morning, right? You picture a kid on Christmas morning throwing off the, 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 the covers of his bed and running down the hallway just to see all the things that Santa uh, has brought him. And so he's looking at all, all of these things. And I picture almost this moment where it's you, man, he's called you. And he just jumps up, he, he throws off his cloak, he springs up, he's following Christ, man. He is getting there. Verses 51 to 52, we see the exchange between Jesus and Bartimaeus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi or Rabboni, let me recover my sight. He didn't ask for a whole lot, honestly. He didn't ask for power. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't even ask for, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I be good enough? Whatever it may be. Basically, he says, Jesus, I, everyone else can see, and I just want to see. <laughs> what can I do for you? I, I would light my sight. 
And Jesus responds somewhat curiously, but a way in which we've become accustomed to as we've read through Mark. He says, go your way, your faith has made you well. Go your way, your faith has made you well. Go your way, your faith has made you well. Made you well. The word that we've translated and translated as made you well is so-so. And it's a word that wouldn't necessarily just mean physical healing. It's a word that cuts a bit deeper, cuts a bit more spiritually than what just brings healing. That word so-so would mean saved. It's this holistic healing that he has been made well. In essence, Jesus says, your faith has healed you. Your faith has completely healed you. Your faith has made you whole. Your faith has saved you. Something more profound than just getting physical sight has happened to this guy because he came to Jesus with faith and he got salvation. He came to Jesus with faith and he got salvation. And that pattern holds true for us. We come to Jesus with faith and I would have a faith that God grants us in the first place. David Platt used an awesome example of this at Secret Church when he talked about when you're a parent and your kids get you a Christmas present, right? It's like, you've got the money and your kid's like, hey, I'm gonna get you a Christmas present. And they're like, He's like, yeah, that'd be great. So can I have some money? And it's like, uh, yeah, you know, here's 40 bucks or whatever. And so they go get him a nice tie and they bring it to him. And like, here's your Christmas present. And it's like, did they get him the Christmas present? Kinda, maybe, sort of. So he gave them the gift that they were in then turn able to give back to him. And I think our faith is the same way, that God grants us the gift of faith. And we authentically and truly respond with faith to God, our Father, in a way that heals us and saves us. Your faith has healed you. When your faith is placed in Jesus Christ, your most basic needs are met. When your faith is placed in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You're taken from the path everyone's walking and put on the path that Jesus has paved for us. Something more profound and more meaningful than simply being able to see has happened to Bartimaeus, our friend. The last thing, well, the, the first thing he says is what? Go your way. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's think about that. Go your way. And then the last sentence, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus can see, man. Only God knows how long he's been sitting there by the side of the road begging for uh, people to look his way. And he finally can see, man, go look at stuff, right? Go do something. Go see all the things you've wanted to see. Go look at Herod's palace right down the street, right? Use your sight for something you've wanted to use it for in the last however many years he's been alive. But what way does Bartimaeus go? Whatever way Jesus goes. Whatever way Jesus went, this was evidence of his saving. So too, our following Jesus is our evidence of our salvation. And Bartimaeus essentially, I love it, Jesus says, go your own way. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus took Bartimaeus from being a beggar by the road to a disciple on the road. Jesus took Bartimaeus from being a beggar beside the road to a disciple on the road. And the way of Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus responds with, man, I, I, I have nowhere to go but to follow you now. Like, I want to be with you. I want to follow you. And it's so exciting to think about that. The great lie, the great lie of, Christ, of cultural Christianity is that there can be salvation without discipleship. The great lie of Appalachian Christianity is that you can pray a prayer and get saved and then not give two hoots about Christ for the rest of your life. 
The great lie of cultural Christianity is that Jesus just wants to save you, but that's where it all kind of ends, and you just get your insurance policy when you're four years old. That way you don't have to deal with it anymore. And then once you've got your insurance policy, you can care about the things that really matter, like education, power, and things like that. But one minute Bartimaeus is on the side of the road begging, and the next minute Bartimaeus is following the way himself. As inspirational as this sounds and as triumphant as this moment is to think about, man, that's awesome that Jesus takes beggars and he, he makes them disciples and he's sitting on the road, now he's in the middle of the road and, and so he was an outsider and now he's an insider and he was this and now he's that and he was rejected and now he's loved and man, it's awesome and he's joined this triumphant procession but we have to remember where they're going to. Going to the cross in no long time at all as inspirational as the sounds, lest we not forget where they're going. Because sometimes winning looks a lot like what the world would call losing. As we wrap up, we can't experience the saving grace of God until we realize that, that we're not that different from Bartimaeus. We can't experience the saving grace of God until we realize that we're not that different from Bartimaeus. Worship team, if you guys would like to approach the Lord's table and we will follow you in, in just a moment. You know, in English classes, I was an English major, as you guys know, um, and they always talk about like looking for imagery and looking for symbols and sort of like symbolism 101, right? Imagery 101 is look for like anytime an author uses the eye, right? Because the eye is almost always some sort of significant symbol that carries with it more meaning than, um, than you see at face value. And I don't think it's a coincidence, right, that um, this portion of Christ's ministry is sort of bookended with, um, with these stories of people who were blind being given sight, with these stories of people who couldn't see that now can see. Yes, that Christ uh, has fixed their eyes, but symbolically as we look at this throughout human history, as we look at this through the lens, right, of the cross and the resurrection, we know that what Jesus has done by dying in our place is he has made a way to God, that Jesus has taken people like us who were darkened in our knowledge of God, and he has shown us the radiance of God's glory. When we come to God sincerely, Messiah, have mercy on me, a sinner, God opens our eyes, and like Bartimaeus, our eyes open, and we see the world around us, and we see Christ before us, and we see a new way to walk. And it's this beautiful, beautiful picture, and some of you just can't see that picture right now. Some of you just don't see that beautiful picture of discipleship and the glory of God in front of you, and I relate to that. Uh, because on my honeymoon, we went to uh, England and Ireland. And so uh, my parents were gracious enough. They were like, hey, uh, we'll take you guys, send you guys wherever you want to go. And of course, I'm going to ask big. You know, they can always say, no, Myrtle Beach is going to be where you go. And so, um, I, you know, you ask big and you get what you get. That's kind of how you do things. And so uh, I said, I'd love to go to England and Ireland. And mom was like, okay. Uh, don't know why I said that. But then we ended up finding group fun. It was a really good deal, and Holly and I got to go. And so the trip was awesome, but I got sick uh, almost immediately. 
And so the first night, you know, we're in this gorgeous cabin in the hills of northern England, and I'm just sick as a dog and feeling like death warmed over. But we ended up having a great trip still. And then we fly over to Ireland for the second half of the trip, and I could not wait to see the Cliffs of Moher. Right? If you've ever uh, been to Ireland or seen postcards of Ireland, there's this beautiful, uh, yeah, it looks just like this. I mean, it's like um, beautiful, yeah. So if you've ever been, you know, this is the Cliffs of Moher, and it's gorgeous, man. You, you just look, and it's just cliffs and grass and water and like this beautiful, beautiful imagery. And I've seen all my friends, you know, in the Instagram generation, they all go and they post it. And so in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, this is going to be like a, a great post. Like... <laughs> Molly Ballard might even like this one. Like, this is going to be something that I can post, and, and, and it's going to be awesome. So I'm so excited to see the Cliffs of Moher. And so we, you know, travel, and we drive forever to get there, and then I'll show you the moment I got to see it um, next. <laughs> yeah. So behind me, you see clearly the Cliffs of Moher that you travel by land and sea, risking life and limb for these beautiful vistas. And you realize not only have you wasted your money going there, you have wasted a few hours, you could be somewhere else in Ireland, you have wasted a lot of energy climbing this mountain, a lot of energy. I had a hot chocolate in my hand that was pretty good, uh, but it, even it wasn't very good. I mean, it was just kind of like the Cliffs of Moher left just this bad taste. And so I think some of you, when you think about God and you think about this life of discipleship and you, you picture, you know, Bartimaeus opening his eyes and, and seeing Jesus before him and, and this, this beautiful way set out for him to follow, uh, you see this gorgeous picture, but some of you just kind of see that. You know, some of you don't see um, the glory of Christ. You don't see the, the beauty of Christ because there's a fog over your eyes. You're, you're blind to it. And how many people in our lives they hear us talk about God but the, the vision they have is like, I don't see how it can be that beautiful. I don't, I don't see how it can be that fulfilling. I, I don't see how it can work for me. right? And so there's just sort of a foggy thought about God. But here's the good news, right? That we have the scriptures in which God has revealed himself to us. And when we turn our eyes to these words, these words that have refused to stay off the page, these words that in 2,000 years have gone the world over, these words that are not confined to one culture, these words that bring life where they go. And we see Jesus interacting with Bartimaeus. As we keep reading, we'll see Jesus go to the cross We'll see love displayed on a criminal's cross, right? We'll see Jesus dying in our place. Paul will teach us that, that Jesus died in the place of sinners, that the death of Jesus died was our death, and that the life we can live is his life, and that Jesus has taken the penalty of our sin, and he's put it on ourselves. And we, like Bartimaeus, say, Son of David, Lord Messiah, I don't know a whole lot about you. I've heard of you. I know you're here. I believe that you are the one that's been promised by God. I believe you are the one who has come to deliver us. And I, Lord, I, I, I just, please, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what happens is we're given the gift of sight. Our eyes open and what we could not see, we can see. The fog begins to clear and we begin to see Jesus. 
want to know what God's like, look to Christ. How do you see Christ? Look to his word. I pray this morning for you, if you're a non-believer, I pray that the fog would lift. And if you are a believer, there is much we can learn from Bartimaeus. And the title of today's sermon is An Unlikely Disciple. Jesus will heal and use all who come to him with a sincere heart. Are we urgently sharing the good news as Bartimaeus urgently knew that this was his chance? We're going to take the supper together. Um, When we take the supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Um, Our scriptures teach that it's a meal for for Christians. And so if you're not a Christian, we're really, really glad that you're here. But this portion of the service is for for, for Christians only as ordained by Christ. And so you feel free to, to walk back to the table if you'd like. If you think people are looking at you, I promise you they're not. But if you think they are, uh, I understand the paranoia. I've, I'm there with you. Uh, except you all are looking at me. So yeah, it's funny. Um, and approach the table. Maybe if you're a, um, a professed believer, but there's some, um, some sin in your heart that you are not willing to repent of right now. Then this week, uh, let's hold back on the table and, and seek some seek some help and seek some guidance for that sin. Let me pray for us. And then after I pray, I'll invite you to to join me at the, the table. Lord Bartimaeus has encouraged me this week. I've seen in Bartimaeus an energy, an urgency, and an enthusiasm that I want for myself. But even more than Bartimaeus has encouraged me this week, Lord, you have encouraged me this week because I realize that even as you're taking step by step by step to the cross, you don't tell everyone else you're too busy for them right now, but you say, I see you, Bartimaeus, I hear you, Bartimaeus, and I'll save you, Bartimaeus. That you took a beggar like me on the side of the road and you made me a disciple right in the middle of the road. Lord, there's nothing we've done to deserve this. May we respond with discipleship. As Jesus says to Bartimaeus, okay, go your way, you're healed. Bartimaeus essentially looks back and says, I'd have nowhere to go but with you. May your way become our way. Help us, Lord, follow you in the everyday stuff of life. Keep us near in prayer. Keep us in our Bibles. Keep us gathering with the church consistently, weekly, Lord to be built up in love and spurred on to good deeds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. At this time, for the next few moments, approach the table to partake of the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you.